1: And I want you to take your copy of the Word of God and open it with me in the New Testament to the book of the Hebrews. I'm sure all of the folks from the couple's retreat thought I was going to Philippians, but I do preach from other books besides Philippians. And I want to draw your attention this morning to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter number 11. And in fact, when you get to Hebrews 11, if you mark your place in the Bible, we're going to camp here all day today. In this early service, in the next service, and then in the evening hour. Three meetings from Hebrews chapter number 11 and I'd like to encourage you to do something if possible with your family today and that is read Hebrews chapter number 11. Now reading it in church doesn't count, all right? So you have got to read it on your own time, read it at your home, read it after the noon meal or read it tonight before you go to bed but sometime today try to read this wonderful faith chapter uh, together and if you read it out loud it'll do your heart good. As I have spent some time in this book, of course, we know it's all about faith, and faith is always a personal thing. It's an individual thing. You can't believe God for somebody else. You cannot give faith, but you can live faith in such a way that somebody else wants to exercise faith in God. So I can't give faith to my children. I can't say to Morgan, Morgan, here's your daddy's faith. I can't say to Lauren or to Grant, here's here's some faith for you. No, they can't live on my faith. They have to believe God for themselves, but as a dad, as a husband, I can so live the life of faith that it has an impact on them, and they desire to trust my God for themselves, and so when you come to Hebrews chapter number 11, it is not just personal faith at stake. In fact, I don't know exactly when this dawned on me, but at one point, reading and studying through the book of Hebrews and coming to Hebrews chapter number 11, I realized that Hebrews 11 actually emphasizes family faith. See, the heart of God is always for families because family was God's idea. When you come to the New Testament, you find the Lord saving individuals, of course, but when God saved those individuals, what immediately did He do? He started working like a ripple effect in their families. For example, Lydia gets saved, and then her household comes to faith in Christ. The Philippian jailer gets saved in Acts 16, and guess what happens? His whole house gets saved and baptized. Cornelius comes to faith in Christ. Oh, but it wasn't just Cornelius. No, he had a house full of people there to hear the gospel. See, when somebody comes to know Jesus, it not only affects them, it affects everybody that they touch. So when you come to Hebrews chapter number 11, I want to draw to your attention today this family faith. Just to give you a little idea of where I'm going, there are three families mentioned by name in Hebrews 11. Have you ever noticed it? Mark them in your Bible. In verse number seven, you have the family of Noah. <clears throat> That's where we're going to start in this hour, with Noah's family. Then, when you get to verse eight, uh, down through about verse number 22, you deal with one family it's the family of Abraham. Now, we may say the family of Isaac, the family of Jacob, the family of Joseph, and so on, but it all started with somebody. It was the family of the father of faith, and that was Abraham. Then, when you come to verse number 23, down through the next few verses, you come to the family of Moses. And in the evening hour, we're going to look at the family of Moses. Because it's my conviction that if you look at these families, the family of Noah, the family of Abraham, and the family of Moses you get a pretty good pattern, a template to follow that God wants for every one of our families. So let's look at the family portrait, shall we? Let's begin with one verse today, Hebrews 11, verse number 7. Here's our text. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I was, I was pondering this this morning. Isn't it amazing that a man's whole life gets summarized by one verse? And by the way, quite a life it was. In fact, you want to read his story, you'll have to read Genesis 6, Genesis 7, Genesis 8, Genesis 9. And then if you want to read what all he said in motion, you have to read the chapters that follow that and the lives of his children and what happened to them. And isn't it fascinating that an entire life can get summarized by one verse? Now, we do that at times. When people die, we put an epitaph on their grave marker. Now, my dad has pastored the same church for the last 31 years, but before he pastored, he was in the cemetery business. And some people think that's a very morbid thing, but somebody's got to do it. And, you know, it's interesting, whatever your daddy does for a living on vacation, you notice it. we'd be driving down the interstate, and somebody in our car would say, that's a nice cemetery. It like the Adams Family on vacation, you know. <clears throat> but early on, I got enamored, really, with epitaphs. I started collecting them. I've got a whole collection of epitaphs. I should have brought a bunch of them and read them to you this morning. They're fascinating what families put on grave markers. In Wetumpka, Alabama, a guy named Solomon Pease died, and they put on his grave marker, beneath these clods and beneath these trees lies the body of Solomon Pease. This is not Pease. It is only his pod. Pease is shelled out and gone home to God. I like that one. And someday soon, we're all going to shell out and go home to God. But I want to say to you that Hebrews 11 and verse number 7 is Noah's epitaph. And what is the epitaph? It's one verse long, but notice how it starts and how it ends, like bookends on his life. Read with me, please, the first two words of the verse. Ready? By faith. Wait a minute. Go to the end of the verse. Read with me, please, the last two words of the verse. Ready? By faith. Isn't this beautiful? It is a life that starts and ends with faith in God. I was in Reagan National Airport a few months ago, weeks ago, I guess, and uh, I got stuck there for a little while, and I was getting something to eat, and I bumped into a man, a businessman, a gentleman. I did not know him, but I struck up a conversation with him, and I offered him a piece of gospel literature, and I said to him, Do you know the Lord is your Savior? And his response to me was, Oh, I'm a man of faith. And I said to him, That's wonderful. But faith in what? Faith in whom? In our world today it's it's common for people to say, I'm a man of faith. They mean by that they believe there's a God. They believe in a higher power. But I want to say to you, the great thing about faith is not your faith, it's the object of your faith. It's not about us. It's about the one that we are believing. And the great thing about Noah was not Noah. Noah was an imperfect man living in an imperfect age and certainly with an imperfect family. Read the story of his family. But I'm going to tell you the great thing he had. He had faith in an all-perfect God. And I'm preaching to a bunch of imperfect people this morning. Good morning, sinners. Nice to see all of you. And you're listening to an imperfect man. And your family's not perfect because no family is perfect. But I'm glad to tell you this morning on the authority of the word of God, we have a perfect God and he can be trusted and he must be believed. And when you come to the family of Noah and to Noah's faith in God, what is it that we learn? What is God's great emphasis? Would you write this down maybe in the margin of your Bible? I'm speaking this morning on this subject, faith near the end. You see, You've got to remember where Noah was living. Context matters. He's not just any man with any family at any time. No, no, no. He is the man with a family of faith, look please, living right here on the edge of judgment. Literally on the verge of a worldwide flood. Is that right? He's living just before the hammer falls, or maybe we should say just before the rain begins to fall. And just before God's great wrath is poured out on this world and judgment comes. And isn't it interesting to see a faith that was strong in God near the end? Back up to verse number 1 of Hebrews 11. Notice where the chapter starts. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By the way, those words are repeated in Noah's verse. He believed the things that were not seen. That's what faith is. Look at verse 2. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So where does the great faith story begin? Look, go all the way back to the very beginning. Before Noah, all the way back to the beginning, excuse me, before Adam, you've got to go back to the very beginning of time. Faith must begin in the fact that our God is the creator God of the universe. And so Hebrews 11 begins at the beginning. I think that's a good place to start, don't you? In the beginning, God. But watch this. It doesn't end there. In fact, if you read and study Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to find that woven throughout every generation and every nation and every individual and every family is one thing, a view of the end, an eye towards eternity. It is not enough to think of God as the creator God. You must remember that God is also the judge of all the earth and he will do right. That the God who was first is also last. That the God who is the beginning is also at the end of all things. Of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so when you come to this verse, it is a reminder that in a very real sense we are all living near the end. People say to me almost every week, Preacher, do you think we're living in the last days? And I say, without a doubt. How do you know that? Because actually, when you study the New Testament, the last days started when Christ came the first time. Hebrews says, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And in the Apostle Paul's day, he referred to living in the last days and perilous times that had come. So, look, there's no question we're living in the last days. I'm going to tell you where I think we're living, and I'm not here to set any dates, but I'm going to tell you where I think we're living. I think we're living near the last of the last days. I believe we're ending near the end of the age. By the way, that's not a drudgery. People talk about the last days like they're dreading it. The only reason you have something to dread is if you don't know Jesus as your Savior. My friend, God's people ought to be the happiest, most hopeful people on planet Earth right now. I'm not looking for an end. I'm looking for a new beginning. I'm not watching for Antichrist. I'm keeping my eye on the sky for the coming of the Christ. Any moment a trumpet may sound and the Lord Jesus may step out on a cloud. Oh, my friend, I want you to know these are not days to have your head down. These are days to get your head up. Lift up your head. Your redemption draweth nigh. And like Noah living in his age, we are living near the end. And I can't think of anything right now that God's people standing on the edge of eternity, nearing the end of the world and the judgment of ungodly men need any more than we need to have genuine faith in God And in every sense, Noah is a parallel to our age. Let me prove it to you. Hold your place here just a second. Just hold your place in Hebrews 11 and turn back in your Bible to Luke chapter 17. Let's go to the doctor's office for just a moment, all right? Dr. Luke, the beloved physician, writes many of the words of Jesus. And look at Luke chapter 17. He gives one of our Lord's great sermons. And notice that Jesus is the one who drew this parallel between Noah's time and our time. Noah's day and our day. Look at Luke 17, verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. By the way, verse 27 is intriguing to me. I want to say, yeah, that's right. As it was in the days of Noah, they were wicked. As it was in the days of Noah, the imagination was vile. As it was in the days of Noah, they were a bunch of immoral idolaters. That's all true, but that's actually not what Jesus draws the parallel with. Look at verse 27. They did eat. They drank. They married wives. They were given in marriage. Stop just a second. How many of you have done any one of those things? Let's try it again. How many of you have eaten in the last 24 hours? How many of you have drank anything? Good. How many of you are married? How many of you ever given your children in marriage? Now, we're, Tammy and I are getting ready to do that in January. Would you all pray for us, please? Pray for us. I've been praying for Jesus to come before January the 8th. Would you join me in that prayer? What's he listing here? Watch, please. Not bad things, but ordinary things without God. Do you know what marked Noah's age? It wasn't just they were doing evil. They were doing evil. It was this. They were living their ordinary lives with no thought for God. Doesn't that sound a whole lot like the world we're living in right now? People just go merrily right on their way, go about their business. They're ungodly. They give no regard to God. And look at it. Until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And I will tell you this morning, as surely as that day came in Noah's age, that day is going to come in our world. And I wonder, when the Lord comes, is he going to find a Noah? Matter of fact, turn one page in your Bible to Luke 18. Jesus told another story. Look how he ended it. Verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, see, this isn't my question. This is Jesus' question. Shall he find what? Faith on the earth. Now, the answer to the question is yes. There'll be people believing the Lord, and God always has a people. He always has a remnant. And sometimes you're going to find faith in the most unexpected places. And by the way, I hate to tell you this, it's not always among the most religious people that you find real faith. It's not always the people who clean up good for church on Sunday that are really exercising the greatest faith in God. But here's the point. Look, when the Lord came in judgment the first time, he found a man named Noah who had favor with God because he had faith in God and God spared his family. When the Lord comes the next time, will he find faith on earth? Will he find a Noah? Will he find a Noah's family who are exercising faith in God near the end of the age? Let's go back to our verse, and let me give you some simple practical truths here. May I? Would you write them down? They all come from our verse. These are the things that Noah did with his exercising of faith near the end that all of us can do now. Number one, here's the most obvious thing. He listened to God. He listened to God. See, that's where faith starts. Faith doesn't start by you mustering up faith. Excuse me, you don't come to church and get it worked up. You don't stand in the mirror and psych yourself up and say, all right, get out there and believe God today. That's not where faith comes from. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Look at the verse. By faith, Noah, watch this, being warned of God. Don't miss the warning here. You know what I think we're missing? I think we've got a lot of people even in churches today who are missing the warnings of the word of God. We like the comfort of the Word of God. We like the consolation the preacher gives from Scripture, but we don't want that warning. May I say to you, if ever there was a time God's people needed to heed the warning and sound the warning and stay in tune with God, it is the moment we are living in right now. I'm going to tell you how to live by faith near the end. Listen to God. Stay in this book, dear friends. This is not the time to set your Bible on a coffee table and let it gather dust. This is the time to open the Word of God and let the Word of God open you. Get into the Word and let the truth of the Word of God get into your spirit again. People say they need a revival. I say a revival of what? I'm going to tell you one thing we need. We need a revival of Bible reading. That's what we need. Hey, you remember when you first got saved? How many of you remember when you first got saved? You got your first Bible, you were excited about it, couldn't wait to read it, started reading it, started finding things you'd never seen before. God was opening things to you. You'd come to church and you'd tell another Christian, hey, you're not going to believe what I found in the Bible this week. And they acted like it was old hat. Yeah, yeah, they'd seen that a hundred times. But it was fresh and new to you. I'm going to tell you what we need. We don't need something new. We need a fresh look at the eternal Word of God. We need to fall in love with the God of the Bible all over again. We need to stay sensitive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. I wonder, are you in tune with God? You hear the music in this room right now? It's beautiful music. It's here. Somebody said, This preacher's either lost his mind or is hearing one. Something's not right. Oh, no, it's here. And bring me a radio, and let me tune the dial, and immediately somebody say, oh, we recognize that song. Oh, I know that voice, or we listen to that channel in the car. Wait a minute. The music was here all along. You just had to get some receiver that was on the right frequency to pick it up. Listen to me. God is speaking at this moment through his word and by his spirit. I'm going to tell you what he's lacking. He's lacking people who are on the right frequency to receive what it is he has to say. I fear far too many, excuse me, conservative Christians are more in tune with conservative news than they are the good news of the Word of God. And when we start taking our cues from unregenerate men who do not walk in the Spirit, I tell you, we are not walking by faith. We are walking in the flesh, and that cannot please God. Matter of fact, back up one verse. Look at verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Look, you want to please God? You want to live by faith in the end? Number one, you better start listening to God again. Number two, write this one down. He believed God. There's a beautiful, logical progression to this truth. Because he was warned of God, the Bible says, by faith. He believed it. Matter of fact, mark two phrases in, in the verse. Would you mark these two phrases and connect them? I want you to mark the phrase, by faith. And then I want you to mark the phrase, with fear. This struck me last night. By faith with fear. Matter of fact, say that with me. By faith with fear. No, no, say it again. Ready? By faith with fear. One more time. By faith with fear. It dawned on me that there is a direct connection, no, a divine connection between genuine faith and the fear of God. You know why people don't trust the Lord? Because they don't stand in awe of his greatness and who he is. You don't get faith without fear. We're living in an age where lots of people are afraid. They just don't fear God. They, they fear sickness more than they fear God. They, they fear what men can say or do to them more than they fear God. They fear the future and the uncertainty of life more than they fear God. Here's what I've learned. When you learn to fear God, it fixes the other fears. And I'm going to tell you why. Because when God gets big, everything gets little. When God is in his rightful place, when you stand in awe of how wonderful and great your God is, then suddenly it enables you to say, Lord, if you're that big, I believe you can handle whatever I'm dealing with. See, people do not faith the Lord until they fear the Lord. Do you fear God? We like to say those wicked people out there don't fear God. No, no. Do we fear God? What marks the age that we're living in, this apostate age? Romans chapter 1, there is no fear of God before their eyes. But let's not preach to the ones who aren't here. Let's let God speak to those of us who are here. Do you fear God? Do you fear him enough to trust him and to believe him? And by the way, what do both of these words have in common? Two things. Both of them are heart words. Where is faith and fear both rooted? In your heart. In the deep places. Excuse me, you don't put this on for church on Sunday. It's not external, it's internal. It is deeply personal. It's at the deepest part of your spirit that you believe. It's at the deepest part of your spirit where you fear someone or something. Look, it's a heart word. But not only that, they're both Godward words. And I love that. Noah's life, would you look up here just a moment, was not lived this way. It was lived this way. I'm going to tell you how I know that, because you wouldn't build an ark if you listened to everybody around you. And you wouldn't preach to people that rain's coming that they'd never seen before if you just want to please men. No, no, this is a Godward life. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, awaken some of us today to stop living such manward lives and start living Godward lives again. To stop living for time and get back to living for eternity. To stop living for what is in front of us and instead start living for what is before us. Not what we can see, but what we can only see through the eyes of faith and the lens of the word of God. Oh, Lord, help some of us today to listen and believe. There's a third thing he did. Would you write it down? He obeyed God. It's simple, isn't it? He listened to God. He believed God. Now he obeys God. How do we know that? Look at the verse, by faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved. (laughs) Oh, he moved with fear. I hear people say, I believe God, and then they do nothing. James says, faith without works is dead. You want to have real faith? Then it ought to come out. Whatever's on the inside is going to come out. I hear people say this, well, I fear God, and then they live like the devil. Well, I fear God, and then they try to please the world. Well, I fear God, and then they do what the flesh tells them to do. I say to you, If you really fear God, if you really believe God, if you're really listening to God, it ought to make a difference in the way you live your life. A very well-known, I started to say preacher, but speaker in religious circles here in the United States in the last couple weeks came out and made quite a stir when he said that when you become a Christian, it really doesn't change anything. Let me use a deep theological West Virginia term for that. Hogwash. It changes everything. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You can't tell me the creator God of the universe moves into your heart and something doesn't change. You can't tell me the God of all light doesn't drive out darkness. Watch this, please. God sets something in motion. Oh, Lord, move us. We need some people to get moved again. What moves you, dear friend? What moves you? You can tell a lot about people by what motivates them. Motive matters. What moves you? What would shake you out of your your nominal Christianity, your ordinary, lethargic, average, run-of-the-mill kind of living? What is it going to take to get the attention of some of God's people near the end of the age? Dear Lord, may we be moved again. That old North Carolina evangelist Vance Havner used to say that a rut is just a grave with both ends knocked out of it. It's death. And I say to you, far too many of us have gotten in a rut We're going through the motions and mechanics of it all, the routine of it all. But somewhere we've lost the power, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the great heart hunger after God. And I'm going to tell you what we need. We need some of God's people to get moved again to obey the Lord and just do what God left us here to do. Specifically, what did he do? He moved and he built an ark. I'm not suggesting that you build an ark. In fact, in a minute, I'm going to tell you, the ark's already been built. His name is Jesus. But may I ask you a deeply personal question? What is it God's told you to do you haven't done yet? Is there anything? Is there anything? You said small. That's not what I ask you. Is there anything... You say, well, you know, I'm going to do it. No, no, no. Is there anything the Holy Spirit of God has prompted you to do that you've not yet taken action on? Friend, that's exactly what you ought to do today. Do you understand any moment Jesus may show up? Hey, how'd you like to meet him at the judgment seat? I'm going to tell you, when I get to the judgment seat, I don't want to tell the Lord that I spent my time on lesser things and doing what I wanted to do and pleasing everybody else and fussing about petty things. When I get to the judgment seat, I want to know that I have given everything I had to God and did everything God told me to do. You want to live by faith near the end? you got to listen to God. you got to believe God. You've got to obey God. Number four, write this one down. He brought his family to God. The Bible says he prepared an ark to the saving of his house. Don't miss his house, his household. Oh, my friend, I don't want to just go to heaven. I want to take my whole family with me. How many of you have a family member that needs Jesus? Would you raise your hand big and high? You have a family member that needs Jesus. I'm going to tell you what we ought to be praying right now. Oh, Lord, help me get them in the ark. There's a flood coming, friends, not of water, but of fire. Dear Lord, help me get them in the ark. Our time is short. Do you understand the window is closing? Soon the door will be closed. Do you understand we have this moment before Jesus comes. Oh, God, awaken our passion for souls and our compassion for the lost again. When was the last time we wept for souls? Let me really get radical. I know it's early Sunday morning. When was the last time we fasted and prayed for the salvation of a loved one? They gave up sleep and got down on our face in the middle of the night and sought God to save them. Have we really given up believing they're even going to be saved? Maybe we're still praying it, but we're not praying it by faith. Somebody has to believe God enough, not only for you, but for them to be saved, that we say, by the grace of God, I will do all I can right where I am, while I can, to get my family to God. The world is perishing and we must win as many as we can, save as many as we can. But I'm going to tell you where we need to start. We need to start in our own homes again. And two, two things jumped out at me in this verse. On one hand, you got salvation. That's the Lord's work. How many of you know God does the work of salvation? But on the other hand, there's preparation. Look at the verse. He prepared an ark. Look, please. God will do his part. God will do the saving. But I ask you, what preparation needs to be made in our own lives, in our own families? What prayer work needs to be done? What witnessing work needs to be done? What living work needs to be done to get people ready to hear the gospel so that they might be born again? Noah brought his family to God. A few weeks ago, I was flying to South Florida to preach. I sat down on the airplane. I was by myself and a lady, a businesswoman, got on and she sat next to me and we struck up a conversation. I was going to try to talk to her about the Lord, but I didn't really need to talk to her about the Lord. She was going to talk to me about the Lord. She found out I was a preacher. You know, when you're at 30,000 feet and people find out you're a preacher, they're either really glad they're sitting next to you or really wish they weren't. And she was glad. Tears filled her eyes and she said, Sir, Jesus has changed my life. She said, he's changed my family. I said, tell me about that. She said, my husband and I were lost. And she said, God just got a hold of us. And she said, we both got saved. She said, we really got saved. I said, that's wonderful. I said, where are you going? I expected her to say she was on some business trip or maybe on some vacation. Well-dressed woman. You, You could tell someone with means. Tears filled her eyes. She said, well, that's an interesting story. She said, my husband and I have been so burdened for our family. She said, they're all lost. Matter of fact, she reached over. She said, would you help me pray for my family to be saved? Been a long time since I'd heard somebody say that, and it wasn't in a church building. It was on an airplane. And she said, that's where I'm going. She said, my husband's family lives in South Florida. She said, I'm, my husband and I are meeting, one, meeting there. He's been on a business trip. We're meeting there for one purpose. We're going to go visit every family member and try to bring them to Jesus. Amen. And then she didn't stop there. I mean, I was, I was already stunned at that. Then she said, when we finish in Florida, we're flying directly to California. I said, what's in California? She said, my side of the family. And she said, we've made a covenant with God. We're not going to leave this world without trying to get every one of our people saved. And I thought to myself, I wonder what happened in churches if some of God's people got a hold of that. As you near the end look at it, you've got to listen to God and believe God and obey God and bring your family to God. Number five, you've got to stand for God because look at the end of the verse. It's not going to be easy. It says, by the which he condemned the world. Now, I have no doubt they condemned him. Would you agree with that? They must have laughed at him, mocked at him, thrown things at him, all of that. But the Bible says he condemned the world. What does that mean? He just stood up and said, you bunch of filthy sinners? No, no. It means this, that his faith brought such conviction to them that the way he lived his holy life brought such a condemnation on them. Look, when 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 people get angry at you, it's usually because they're under conviction. I was reading the end of Psalm 149 this morning and the Bible says that God has given such judgment to all of his people. And I connected that in my thinking to what's going on here. It doesn't mean that we're the judge. God is the judge in the end. But I'm just going to tell you something. You start living right, doing right, speaking right, somebody else is not going to like it and you're going to have to have the courage and the boldness that grows out of faith in God to just keep pressing forward with your eye on the end. One more thing and I'll be done. I like this one. He was blessed by God. Look at the end of the verse. He didn't just condemn the world. Watch this. He became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. I want you to just chew on that phrase. Heir of the righteousness which is by faith for a moment. Let me ask you a question. How rich was Noah before he got on the ark? Like how much money did he have? How much stuff did he have? How well off was he? And the answer is, we don't know. I would imagine he had some means because he figured out some way to build an ark, quite an ark, too. But we have no idea about how much he had. Watch this. When he stepped off of the ark, how much did he have? You ready? He had it all. Watch this. When he walked off the ark, he and his family were the only humans living on planet earth. You ever think about all his inheritance was? But wait, this verse is not talking about the physical or the material inheritance. Look at it carefully. He became an heir of something much greater than that. He became heir of the what? The righteousness, which is by faith. I'm going to tell you what faith does. Look, please. Faith brings you to God. And faith brings all of God to you. There is a rich life, friends, a rewarding life, a wonderful, rejoicing life that grows only out of faith in God. And at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 6, you got old Noah. And right here in the middle of the Bible in Luke, Jesus gives Noah. And here in Hebrews, we got Noah. You go to the end of your Bible in 2 Peter talking about the end of the age and the end of time, the end of all things. Guess who pops up again? Noah. You know why that is? It's almost like the Lord keeps emphasizing him for a reason. I wonder what that is. Because the Lord says near the end, you need something. Some say, oh, we need a lot, preacher. We got a lot of needs right now. No, we we need one thing. I'm going to tell you what we need. Real faith in God. Because watch this. When you have faith in God, you have access to all that God is. Would you look me in the eye? I want to say to every person listening to me this morning, every person, hear me with your heart. I do not know your deepest needs, but God does, and God will meet them by faith. Our Father, I want to ask this morning in this early hour that you will awaken something in your people that you will build and grow and strengthen faith in every one of us. Oh, Lord, that you'll give us faith as we near the end. Help us, Lord.
0: If this Bible message has been used of God in your life or we can pray for you in some definite way, please contact us at enjoyingthejourney.org. We hope you will share the message with others who may also be encouraged by it. For additional full-length Bible messages, please visit Dr. Scott Pauley's YouTube channel. Tomorrow is the Lord's Day, and we want to encourage you to be faithful to attend a Bible-preaching church in your area this Sunday. Thank you for listening to The Weekend Pulpit. And don't miss Enjoying the Journey daily devotional podcast each Monday through Friday.